0: But down here, they'll take you to Children's Church. If you've got a Bible, open up to Revelation chapter 21. Chapter 21. Now, I've asked uh, Jordan Hicks if he would read for us this morning. So, if you would, please stand as we honor the reading of God's word this morning. The city had twelve foundation stones and on them were written the names of the twelve apostles of the land. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for again this time of year that we look back to your first coming, but then we look forward to your second. Uh, Father, I thank you for that song that we just sang as we're praying and asking that you would come again with us to dwell. And so today as we again look at heaven and what that's going to be like, I pray that we would focus on the fact that that we will live an embodied life with you we will dwell with you we will be in your presence and that all the sad things of this world will come untrue on that day And that's a promise that you have given us. And that is a promise that those of us who have trusted in Jesus for salvation uh, can look forward to. And so today I pray that you would strengthen and encourage Christians in this room. Uh, I pray today that if there's anyone in here that does not know you, that today as the gospel will be preached, that you would save and change lives today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, You guys can have a seat. So, so we, we talked about how throughout the, the book of Revelation, John's pattern has been to take us to the end, and then all of a sudden, he recapitulates back, and he takes us to the end, and then he recapitulates back until you get to chapter 21. And, and now that we're, we're in chapter 21, it's all of a sudden like he's not going to go back. Instead, he's just going to show you and I what heaven is like. He's going to show us what it's like to dwell with the Lord. And what we said last week was this, is that we have to get this idea out of our head that we're going to go float on some cloud uh, in a little gold diaper playing a harp like Tom and Jerry. That's not what's going to happen. The the Bible's clear is that we will live this embodied life, not disembodied. You're not going to be some weird orb just floating around. You will live an embodied life in a new heaven and in a new earth. We said last week that there would be no more chaos or pain, that God himself Right, I got a text from Jay after church that just said, hey, I never really looked at it that way before, but that God himself will be the one to come up to us with the handkerchief and wipe our tears away. He will wipe our tears. Death will be no more, and we will live with Jesus. John tells us that he's making all things new. Daryl Johnson reminds us that Jesus didn't say he was making new things, but that he was making all things new. So that means he's going to renew and purify the world that we live in. There's always been some confusion with this because so many of us have read 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, where Peter says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed, and what we said last week is so many of us think that that just means that God's going to rain fire down from heaven and just destroy the world, and that's not what he's saying. He's not saying he's destroying with fire. He's purifying. He's renewing. The ESV study Bible says God seems always to renew, not destroy. God seems always to recreate parts of his creation that are marred by sin, so God will renew this world that we live on, we will live in a perfect world. No more natural disasters, no more calamities, no more strife, no more drama. Some of you will be a little disappointed. Your social media's gonna be taken away, you won't have nothing to do. No more death. So keep all of that in mind now as John recapitulates. He, he's gonna show us a different camera angle, a different view, a different angle of what heaven's gonna look like. So look again in, in verse nine. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at, the 12, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the three east gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, uh, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So, just very quickly, think of a time in your life, and hopefully you've had this time, where words failed you. Where where you saw something that just took your breath away. So maybe for many of you, and it better be men, all right, that it was your wedding day, correct? Hey, no, it just got a little uncomfortable. All right, somebody's shaking their head. Like she hit the back door and you didn't have words. For me, I didn't have words because the matron of honor was coming down the, the aisle and then all of a sudden she ran back out. And I was going, what happened? And then she was gone for a very long time. And I'm thinking like the FedEx truck came by and Mariah Julia Roberts that thing and got on it and left. Did I just Y'all remember that movie? I dated myself. Just she forgot the ring. It was all good. We made it. But but you didn't have words to describe the beauty of your bride. Right? I did a wedding a couple weeks ago, and that groom he choked up. A boy couldn't handle it anymore. Maybe you're just standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon if you've been there. Could have been a sunrise, could have been a sunset, could have been a rainbow. After a a storm, maybe it's just seeing untouched snow before the kids get in it, before all the mud gets in it. it Just looks beautiful, no wind blowing, just just calm. I love the ocean. Like I'm fascinated by that thing. Like I I get on these kicks where I'll read books about like all kinds of crazy stuff with like the the weather and 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 and, and, like whaling. I got on this real weird kick several years ago where I read all these books about like ancient whalers, and I always told Mariah, "I was like, I could do that. Like I could have been that guy." and she very kindly always says, yeah, yeah, no, you couldn't have. But this past summer, we made it to the beach in Naples, Florida, just as the sun was setting over the water. It was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. It was just stunning. Here's the point. When you're stuck in a moment like that, you just kind of pause and take all that in until the moment passes, don't you? Like, you, think, you don't pause and then try to all of a sudden break down all the colors in the rainbow and be like, well, how's the light reflecting, ref- refracting to make that and to do that and, and all that stuff like that? Like, when you're standing and the, the Grand Canyon takes your breath away, you're not being like, well, I wonder how deep that is or what would happen if I fell over the edge? And, and like, now maybe that comes eventually, but that first look, your breath's taken away. You don't have words. If you're at the base of Niagara Falls, you're taken aback by the beauty and by the amount of water coming over the edge of that. You're not going, well, how many cubic feet of water is coming over that thing right now? When your bride comes down the aisle, you're not going, well, I wonder how much makeup she's got on and how long it took her to do all that. Like, that's not what's going through your head. You're just taking in the moment. Now, we have a phrase for this type of thinking. It's called missing the forest for the trees. So I need you to understand that as we go through this text. Because if we're not careful, you will miss the forest for the trees. You're going to get bogged down in the numbers. You're going to get bogged down in the size and the scope of the city. That what we're going to do is miss the point of what John is describing to us today. What's happening in this text is John is straining for words. It's like he's doing his very best to describe in his limited human finite brain all the things that he's seeing. What he's seeing is just beautiful beyond compare. So he's showing us through symbolism what the new heaven and the new earth will look like. And so what you have to notice right off the bat is that there's this contrast between this vision of the bride, the new Jerusalem, and the vision of the harlot back in Revelation 17. So just flip over a couple pages just very quickly with me. Look at Revelation 17. Let's look at verse 1 and verse 3. So verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Verse 3. Verse 3. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Now, go back to 21. Look at verses 9 and 10. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. Spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride of the wife, the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God so the people of God are seen as a faithful bride a holy a pure wife in relationship to God contrasted with the unholy community of the unbelieving world so we've said this throughout you have to choose the city you want to live in you're either part of Babylon the prostitute or you're a part of the new city the heavenly city the bride of the lamb One, it's a harlot. She's an unfaithful woman who rebels against God. The other's a beautiful bride, a faithful wife who adores her husband and lives in perfect intimacy with her bridegroom. And so I believe that the picture we're reading about today is symbolic, but listen to me, don't get mad, it's very real. It's symbolic of a very real reality, that John is going to use symbolism to show us what that life will be like. So when the angel in chapter 21 says, I will show you, and he shows him the new city. In chapter 17, the angel says, I will show you, and he shows him the prostitute Babylon. Now every one of us in this room look at chapter 17 and go, oh yeah, well obviously there's not really a woman riding a dragon, so that's symbolism. Well if that's symbolism, then this is symbolism, right? We can't make it mean something to us that it didn't mean to them. So if we take this vision very literally in terms of dimensions, you are gonna create this strange, bizarre city that doesn't fit, a, fit with what the Bible tells us heaven will be. And trust me, I love you. I did the work for you this week. There's all kinds of weird stuff out there, man. I, I did a lot of Google searching. Woo! There's some crazy stuff out there. There are some crazy pictures and drawings and people trying to put cubes all over the the place and the map and showing where things are gonna be and all these layers and all these dimensions. In fact, one time, Joe had this guy tell him that we're gonna have these ghost-like bodies in heaven and that we're gonna be able to pass through walls and pass through each other and, and then we'll be able to pass through each and every layer of heaven and the problem with that line of thinking is, is we weren't promised a ghost body. We were promised a real body, right? A, a tangible body, a, a flesh and blood body, okay? So, so keep all that in mind. So, so here we go. Let's, let's, let's look at the new city. So as you read this, you've got to read it with a, with a dual perspective. Jerusalem the bride is us. It's the church. But Jerusalem the bride is also our home. It's both. We are the, the new Jerusalem, but the new Jerusalem is also our home. So you and I use language like this all the time. Let's say that we're gonna have a parade uh, right outside the city limits of Spearman. And so if, if it's this big parade, we're all gonna go to the parade, we use language like this. We say, the whole city came out to the parade. So when I say the whole city came out to the parade, do I mean that all the buildings all of a sudden got arms and legs and feet, and then they uprooted themselves and like Gordon's walked itself outside of the city? Is that what I mean? That's not what I mean. That's not what I mean at all, right? It just means that the city, us, the inhabitants, the people, actually left the city, the location, and we went outside of town to go to the parade. This is what's going on in in this verse, is that these verses are a description of us as the church, but it's also a description of our home. And I get it, you're going, this is weird, it's kind of stretching the limits of my imagination. That's the point. This is exactly what it's supposed to do. Listen, a great way to think about this is I want you to think about the church today. The church has all kinds of warts, all kinds of splits, all kinds of flaws, all kinds of controversies, amen? The church is full of hypocrites. And so anytime somebody goes, hey, that church is full of hypocrites, yeah, you'd fit right in. Come on down, we'd love you to join us. That's what you say every time. Some of you have been hurt by a church in the past. You know what I'm talking about. But here we see the church in heaven as perfect. We see the church as this shining thing, shining with the glory of God. So it's a reminder to all of us in this room that we are not to bail out on God's church. She may be imperfect, but she's still God's plan. All this garbage in our society now that they call deconstruction, right? Where all these really enlightened people are deconstructing what they were raised to believe. It's just a new version of the same game that's been going on for hundreds of years. It's where people, like when I was in college, called it the emerging church, where people would say, like, well, did God really mean? I mean, come on, did God really say? I mean, we really shouldn't be listening to Paul, after all. I mean, if we we really want to know what the gospel's like, let's just stick with Jesus, because Paul, he's kind of cranky, he's kind of mean, and and I don't like all that wrath and all that stuff like that. I mean, God allowing the death of his son, that's kind of like divine child abuse, right? They're saying really weird things like, well, the church is beyond repair, So we need to leave the church and go build a better expression of church. Or my favorite one is that the church is just run by a bunch of white males. And that darned old patriarchy is just getting us down. Get that junk out of here. Get it out of here. God has a plan for his church. She is not perfect, but she is still God's plan. She's still God's plan, and one day he will glorify her. One day he will redeem her. He will clothe her, and she will shine, and this is exactly what John wants you and I to see is God's church in its new home shining in the glory of God. So look at verse 11. Verse 11, it says that she has the glory of God. The, the radiance, like a, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. So she's going to reflect the glory of God. In the Old Testament, the glory of God resided in the temple. In the new city, it'll abide with his people. We just sang about that. That glory already lives in you and I through the Holy Spirit. But when he returns, that glory will reach its ultimate expression. When we read about Jasper, we've already read about it in Revelation chapter 4, verse 3. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So jasper, it's red, brown, green, yellow. It is rarely blue, it's rarely black, uh, or, or white. It's just this very beautiful uh, a reflection. It's a stone that is full of bright colors. Verse 12 tells us, uh, it had a great high wall. 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the name of the 12 tribes of the sons of israel were inscribed there's a great wall now now this has been misused it's been misused in the recent past to be like well heaven's got a wall anybody remember that now i'm not saying that we don't politically protect our borders not not saying that at all but what i'm saying is that why does heaven need a wall if god's enemies are already in the lake of fire so could it be that it's a symbolic gesture here? That, that, that he's using imagery that first century Christians would get? First century Christians would understand that a city is only as safe as her walls. So what John is referencing here is the secure nature and fellowship that we will have with God. That that there's gonna be no need to be worried and lock our doors and put our gun under our mattress at night. We won't need alarm systems. We don't have to worry about these things because nobody can get us. Nobody can assault God's people again. No intruders, no unwelcome guests. Eternal life is free from all threats. Just peace and comfort. You don't have to worry about sending your kids to school and some crazy kid coming in like happened this week in the United States, amen? Amen. There's, there's no threats. There's no chaos. The fact that the 12 tribes of Israel and then the 12 apostles' names are on the walls and on the foundation, it means all the people of God from the old and new covenants will be there. God will not miss a single person. This was promised in the Old Testament in Zechariah 1:16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy my house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Zechariah 2.5, and I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. See, the best part of this city is going to be the presence of God. So so we look forward to that day because we have this unbroken access with God that we will dwell with him. We will be in his presence forever. And so we said this last week is that there'll never be this moment where we feel like we're praying and our prayers aren't going anywhere. There'll never be this moment where we feel lonely. Like when we're in a room surrounded by people, but we feel all by ourselves. You'll never have people just being isolated and feeling like nobody loves them or cares for them because they'll be in God's presence forever and ever and ever. And we will constantly feel that love and that affection. This is what he's getting at, is that we will dwell securely with our God forever. Right? Look at verse 15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square. Its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall, of the city, were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agite, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth cornelian, the seventh Chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, and the tenth uh, chrysopras, (laughs) the eleventh Jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. So the angel speaks to John. He has a measuring rod of gold, to measure the city. Now this is just the fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 40, verse three. Remember, nothing is said in Revelation that wasn't already said in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 43 says, when he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. And then if you go on to read Ezekiel 40 all the way through chapter 48, Ezekiel's given a tour of the restored temple. The temple he describes symbolizes the new heaven and new earth. And that God is going to dwell there and it will be the new holy of holies. See, did you notice that? That the, the city's not a square. So the city's not just length and width, but length, width, and height. We're, we're talking about a city with three dimensions. Does anybody remember where you read about a cube in the Bible? The seven churches would have known. First Kings chapter 6, verse 20, the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long. 20 cubits wide and 20 cubits high. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar. Now don't get hung up on the numbers. The numbers, they're symbolic. People have come up with weird theories to how the people of God will fit in this area. Verse 17 tells us what? It's an angel's measurement pointing to a symbolism. Listen to what Daryl Johnson tells us. He says the number 12 is clearly symbolic. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles of the Lamb, The city has 12 gates, which are all named for the 12 tribes of Israel. The city has 12 foundation stones, named for the 12 apostles of the Lamb. 12,000, a number for completeness and fulfillment. 12 stadia would have been enough to make the point. God's city, the length, width, and height of the cubic city, is 12 by 12 by 12, which perfectly fulfills all of the promises of God. So 12 by 10 is a big city. 12 by 10 by 10 is a really big city. 12 by 10 by 10 by 10 is a really, really big city. It's beyond measurement. It is big enough for all the people of God. The wall's 144 cubits. Where have you heard that number before? 144,000 represents just all of God's people. It's a perfect, complete number. So this city is the perfect size for the people of God. So, So the point is this. Is that we will dwell in the most sacred place in all the world. It's the place where God now chooses to dwell. And then John goes on to describe all these jewels that are in the city. And and, and we're not gonna break them all down. He's just making several points. First one is this, is it's glory. It's beautiful. There's so much beauty in the new heavens and the new earth. that, That God's city is beautiful. And people who are in the city, they're beautiful. Paul spoke of this in Ephesians 2, 20 through 22 that were built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God's people will be beautiful. The place will be beautiful because God is making us beautiful. These stones that they talk about were set in four rows of three on the high priest's breastplate in Exodus 28. They're associated with the Garden of Eden in Ezekiel 28 and in Genesis 2. Solomon uh, laid the foundation of the temple with these exact same precious stones in 1 Kings 5, 7, and 10. What John sees then fulfills Isaiah 54, 11 through 12 that says, "O afflicted one storm-tossed and not comforted. Behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires and I will make your pinnacles of uh, uh, agite and your, your gates of carbuncles and all your walls of precious stones. The stones reflect God's beauty, valuable, radiating light. God's glory is reflected in Eden. God's glory is reflected in the tabernacle. God's glory is reflected in the high priest's garment. And one day, God's glory will be supremely displayed in the new Jerusalem that comes down from God. The streets of gold, the pearls. Listen, all that does is reflect God's wealth. And it's also showing you and I that all this stuff that we pursue in this world, gold, because we're all after it. We're all after money. We all want more of it. Not one of us can say we don't. God's saying, man, all that junk you pursue, guess what? I'm gonna make streets out of that stuff. That's how rich I am. I am so much, I am worth so much more than all the things that you're pursuing. That, that's how wealthy I am. And so we have streets of pure gold. I didn't know this to this week, but did you know that we cannot get 90, 100% pure gold on this earth? The best that they can do, the best gold in this world at Fort Knox is only 99.9% pure. It's impossible to get it 100% pure. They can't do it. But here God's saying, hey man, I got 100% pure gold up here, baby. And it's so pure that it looks like glass. And you and I get to walk on it barefoot. I love that. See, the reason we get to walk on it barefoot is because we're gonna have clean feet. We'll have clean feet because they've been washed by the blood of Jesus. They're not gonna be smudged with our dirty feet because the great servant who loved us to the very end washed us. Here's what John's telling you and I. We're gonna be made holy. No more struggle with sin and temptation. Now, I get it. None of y'all struggle with that. I do, but y'all don't. I get it. Can you imagine that? Whatever that one sin is, you all got it. You got that one thing that you say, I'm never going to do it again, only to do it again? Woo, that's going to be gone. No more temptation when life gets hard to go find comfort in something other than Jesus. No more temptation to run to, to other gods or smaller gods. Instead, we will be made like Jesus we will no longer struggle with sin. We won't be tripped up all the time. There won't be all these prayers that we pray of going, "God, I just can't ever get this thing right." Because we will be made like him. Ooh, I love that. That makes me feel good. But here's the greatest point I think that's being made. Heaven is full of tangible stuff. We're not going to be floating on a cloud disembodied playing a harp. Heaven is full of tangible things. Someone once said that the Christian faith is the most materialistic of all faiths, meaning it's earthy. Listen to what George Ladd says. He says, Christianity always places men and women on a redeemed earth, not in a heavenly realm removed from earthly existence. The Eastern religions do that, folks. It's called nirvana. We're not Eastern. We're not going somewhere else. We're going to live on a renewed earth. God originally made us for earth, and in Jesus, God will fulfill that original intent in a new earth. The destiny of God's people is not to go to heaven. Our destiny is to enter a new heaven and a new earth. I mean, listen, isn't this what Christmas is all about? God became a human. The Word became flesh. God took up our humanity and became what we are. He became flesh and blood. This is the implication of Easter. That Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man, rose from the grave bodily. He did not raise as some orb or some disembodied spirit. He rose bodily. And yes, his Easter body was different from his Good Friday body, but it was the body, it was the prototype, it was the guarantee of what we get one day. So the Christian view of this world is not otherworldly, it's new-worldly. So listen, we are not freed from our creatureness, but from the sin that causes our creatureness to decay. Okay, I'm gonna say that one more time because I didn't get an amen. We are not freed from our creatureness, but from the sin that causes our creatureness to decay. It's God's original earthly dream brought to full completion. And I love that, it's tangible. All right, verse 22. Verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the land. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does, not, who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. No temple in the city, guys. We don't need one, because the temple is the Lord and the Lamb. So, so we don't need a building for the presence of God to dwell, because the temple is the new heaven and the new earth, God's presence is no longer in just one separate uh, individual building. God's dwelling place is the city itself. It's everywhere. It's all the temple. God's glory will fill the entire world. Can you get your mind around it? Yeah, can't either. It's supposed to do that. It's mind-blowing. And it says that God's glory will be so bright that there won't be any need for the sun or the moon. So there's no sin, there's no evil. That means the time change will be gone. Woo! Right on. No, it doesn't mean there won't be a sun or a moon. Tangible stuff, earthy stuff, remember that. It means that God's light will outshine both. Take a flashlight, walk outside on a sunny day. You can't see that light. Why? Because the sun outshines the light of the flashlight. The glory of God and the lamp of the Lamb will outshine the sun and the moon. By its, na- by its light, the nations will walk and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it. So if you look back at verse three, it says that they will be his people. If you look down at the bottom of your Bible, it may have a little, little note down there, but it says peoples. In, in Greek, it's plural. It's, it's peoples, or you could translate it to laity. So oftentimes, we, we talk about the, the laity, lay people, like you guys, like I'm kind of the professional. You're the lay people in the church. So in other words, what he's saying is, is the laity, the peoples. I'll just make it plain. Here's what he's saying, all right? About to blow your mind. Heaven won't just have white people in it. God is going to gather all cultures under the banner of the cross. It won't just have Americans in it. I know, hard to believe. It'll be filled with all nations, all ethnicities. We're going to be there in God's multi-ethnic race. All saved, all redeemed by Jesus. It's Jesus' way of saying this, listen, is that I created cultures, I created nations, I created colors, right? Not one of you is colorblind, don't give me that trash. I created you to see it, so when it all comes together, it creates this beautiful mosaic of what I intended for everything to look like. So when John speaks of the kings of the earth, it's his way of saying that God is going to gather all cultures together under one banner, which is the banner of Jesus Christ. See, that's why the gospel's good news, That's why the gospel is the only thing that'll cure the problems of race. It's not gonna be through your social justice initiatives. It only comes through Jesus. It only comes through the cross. The gospel creates new people who are saved by the blood of Jesus alone. This is what Paul meant in Colossians 3.11. Here, there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all So it means that we won't be getting rid of cultures, but saying all cultures will come together because of the blood of Jesus. It's this amazing reflection of God's glory to say, hey, guess what? I'm not just about saving one nation, but all nations. And I will bring them all in to this city. All who trust in me by faith, I will bring them together and they will reflect me forever and ever and ever. And then he closes with this description of the gates that'll be open and that there will be no night. Jesus said this in Matthew six 20, don't lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth, not moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. No one's going to attack this city. The gates can stay open. No one can breach the walls. There won't ever be an hour of darkness to kill, steal, and destroy. And you and I will be so satisfied in God himself that we won't want to steal we're going to be so satisfied in being his presence forever that, that we won't look at somebody with a bigger mansion and be like, well, man, I, if I'd have just done this and this, I probably could have got that hot tub. It's not going to be that way. Instead, we'll be so satisfied in God that we won't feel that way. So, so to summarize, what he's trying to get you to see is that we will dwell on a renewed earth with renewed bodies and we'll spend our days in the perfect presence of God. No chaos, no evil. No death, no tears of sorrow, just the glory of, this, of the Lord feeling this world. See, what a day that'll be when the planet functions correctly, where there are no more natural disasters, where we won't have to be frustrated or angry with one another inside the church because there won't be any sin to cause anger and frustration and division within our churches we'll spend our time enjoying God in one another. I mean, do you long for that world? That's what he's trying to stir your affections to go. Do you long for that? I mean, I do. I'll be out of a job, it's gonna be awesome. I don't even have to go to business meetings anymore. I can't wait. See, this is exactly what Christmas is about. Christ coming into this world to save and redeem a people so they can enjoy him forever. But notice, the very last verse in verse 27, there's still a warning. I told you there was a warning every week. Nothing unclean will enter that city. Only those who by faith in Jesus have their sins wiped away. Those whose names are written down in the book of life. So how do I know if my name's written down in the Lamb's book of life? Very simple, you can respond today in repentance and faith. Turn from your sins, repent of all the ways that you try to be your own savior, the way that you're trying to fix yourself and save yourself, and by faith, turn and trust Christ. Trust in his life lived for you, his death in your place, and his resurrection, which secured your salvation. If you do that today, then you know that your name was written down in the Lamb's book of life. But then for Christians, listen, this is just another call to you and I to hold fast, to endure, to conquer. Jesus is coming back. He is. Redemption entails a journey of distance. You and I have no categories for the distance that God traveled to be with us. We have no categories for a Savior who suffers and dies and rises from the dead. We have no categories for a Savior who risks everything for sinful people. But he did that for you and I. He's secured our life, and if you've trusted in Jesus, he has brought you back from the dead, and if he did that, listen, he will fetch you home. So no matter how dark it gets, no matter how much suffering you endure, he will see to it that you endure and you arrive safely on the other side. He's put his name on you, and he promises to bring you home where you will permanently live in his presence. And listen, while we wait, he's already given you a down payment, the Holy Spirit. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can endure until that day. So would you pray with me this morning? Father, I thank you so much for this description that John gives us of heaven. And Father, it it strains uh, our imagination, It's hard for us to get our minds around what this will be like. But Father, I long for that day when all things will be made new. Where we will dwell bodily in your presence forever in a renewed creation. Where we will dwell bodily with one another. Redeemed sinners who will spend our eternity praising you, reflecting your glory, and loving one another. Oh, what a day. So, Father, I pray that that image would stir our affections for you today. And as believers, it would cause us to hold fast, to endure, to keep heaven in our mind, to know that that's our goal and that's where we're headed. Father, if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, I pray today as the gospel was preached that you have saved them and that they would put their faith and trust in you and that they would not leave here today until they grab me or Joe or a friend and just say, hey, came in here today, and I wasn't sure if I knew Jesus, but today I I do know, and that we could rejoice with them. Father, thank you that all this is possible because Jesus paid paid it all. So I pray now that we would stand and sing to him for what he's done, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you would, please.